0: So the subject I've been um, asked to speak about today is dealing with doubt. Now we're going to be taking our main reading from Luke chapter 7 uh, as we move on from where we got to uh, last week and we're going to be using John the Baptist as our, as our case study. But before we do that, I think we should look briefly at the bigger picture because I think to understand um, more about doubt, we have to see it in the context of what we understand about faith. And what is faith? Well, Hebrews 11 verse 1 says that it's being confident in what we hope for and having assurance about what we do not see. And it goes on to say that without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And of course that chapter in the book of Hebrews is full of lots of examples of men and women who lived by faith. Why is this important? Well, our lives literally depend on it, don't they? Faith is the means by which we take hold of salvation. And uh, it says in Ephesians chapter 2 that by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We know, the, we know that verse um, well. So if we have doubts, does that put our salvation in jeopardy? No. It's a simple answer. Um, assuming that our faith at the beginning was um, genuine, we believe that uh, we can never lose our salvation. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. When did we become in Christ? That little expression, we find that quite a few places in the New Testament, in Christ. When did that happen? When were you and I put in Christ? Well, it says in Ephesians 1 that it was when we heard the message of truth. The gospel of our salvation and believed it and then in Ephesians 1 and 14 it says pretty much the same as 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 verse 21 which is what I'm going to quote it says it is God who makes us stand firm in Christ he anointed us set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing the things to come So for me, the key questions uh, that we might use or I might use to test if my my faith is genuine are things like this. Number one, do we believe that the God of the Bible exists? Hebrews um, 11 verse 1 says that's pretty important. It's vitally important. If we don't believe in God, then we can't even get started. Number two, do we believe that Jesus is the eternal son of God? sent into the world to bear the punishment that we deserve for our sins and that he did die but on the third day was raised to life again and he lives today in heaven thirdly do we recognize that we are each one of the sinners that christ died for that we're saved by grace and not by anything that we have done to deserve it and have we repented of our sin now, repentance is a, a word that we could spend quite a lot of time studying, but it really essentially comes down to a, a, a desire to go in a different direction, to go in the, in the direction that God wants us to go in. It's about uh, making a conscious choice to follow Jesus and to renounce the things that are part of our old way of life, the things that God doesn't want us to do. Number four, are we trusting in his promise to come back for us? Now that's a really important one, isn't it? In fact, it's more than just importance. The Apostle Paul wrote saying that if only for this life we have faith in Christ, if we you know, don't want to think about the afterlife because we think, well, maybe it's not there. And, you know, if, if that's what our Christianity is about, just doing good works, and let's not think about you know, theological things like the afterlife, Paul says we should be pitied more than anyone. So we have to believe, don't we, that the Lord Jesus is, as he promised, coming back for us, to take us away to, to be with him. And I think the fifth, number five, uh, for me would be, do our actions demonstrate a desire to serve the Lord more than our own self-interests? Uh, that's a point that James makes in, in his epistle, isn't it? That faith without works, without some, any, any evidence of the genuineness of that faith. Well, that's a dead faith. That's not, that's not real faith. We can't say that we believe in something and then do absolutely nothing consistent with what we believe. If I say I believe the fire is hot and I put my hand in it, well, I obviously didn't believe it was hot. You know, it's kind of an obvious logic, isn't it? And yet there are many people who are perhaps not living out the reality of the things that they say they believe. So that's important as well. Now, we may well be able to say yes, um, to all of those questions to, to, to some degree we might feel a bit shy about it we might feel overwhelmingly humble and not really wanting to say some of those things but we might recognise that we can say yes to, to all of those um, things and yet we may still have doubts we may still have doubts so what is doubt in the light of everything that I've just said well it's different to unbelief isn't it? It's not the same as unbelief. There's an example of unbelief in our main text today. It's actually the, the, the back end of the text. I'm looking at the text in a back to front way today because I'm going to read now from Luke 7 verse 29. This is the end of the passage that we've been given to study today. In Luke 27 verse 29, it says, All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John but the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John Jesus went on to say to what then can I compare the people of this generation what are they like now he's referring here to the unbelievers of this generation specifically the Pharisees and the teachers of the law not not everyone here But he says, they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he's got a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. or or actions, the equivalent verse in Matthew says here. Wisdom is proved right by her actions. Jesus was portraying the unbelievers as those who consciously rejected God's purpose for them. They weren't struggling with faith. They had taken a deliberate position. He said they were likes of They were like groups of children um, who refused to play with each other regardless of what game was chosen. They demonised John for his austerity and they criticised and scandalised the Lord Jesus for his apparent lack of austerity. The fact is they were just looking for any old reason to reject their teaching, the teaching of John and the teaching of Jesus. And that's not doubt. That's, That's unbelief. Doubt is a person who desperately wants to believe and overcome the challenges that he, might, he or she might feel. Unbelief is a person who says, I will not believe. I do not believe. I don't want to believe. Doubt, then, um, is different. Now, doubt has been described as more of a hesitation than a, than a full stop. In Mark 9... Um, we read about a man who has a sick child, and he believed that Jesus might be able to, to help, but he wasn't sure. And when the Lord Jesus gently challenged him about his um, lack of faith, he responded with that very well-quoted verse. He says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. We have a man who had faith, but he also had, alongside that faith, uh, he had doubts. We see it even more with Peter. In Matthew 14, Peter demonstrated extraordinary faith. In that he was willing to get out of the boat on a tormented sea and walk towards Jesus on the water, believing that Jesus would enable him to do it. And then the next moment he gets distracted by all of the wind and the waves and fear comes into his heart and he starts to sink. And it says that Jesus immediately grabbed him by the hand and said to him, he said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, he didn't have no faith. He didn't have a failure of faith. He had a little faith. He had a faith in its infancy that still had a lot of growing um, that needed to be done. The word translated as doubt there um, is the same word that's used to describe the disciples. After the resurrection, not before, after the resurrection. um, It says in Matthew 28 that the Lord Jesus appeared to them and the disciples worshipped him, it says. And it says but some doubters. You've got disciples there looking at the resurrected Lord Jesus and they are doubting some of them. And, the same, and we have the same, um, I don't know if it's the same occurrence described by Luke differently or if it's a different occasion, but in Luke 24, verse 38, Jesus says, the resurrected Jesus says to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your minds? So I think it's a bit unfair that Thomas gets the nickname "doubting Thomas" because he wasn't the only one who doubted. But I didn't want to talk about John the Baptist. I said I was going to um, Thomas. I want to talk about John the Baptist. So let's go back to the beginning of the passage now in Luke seven. Verse eighteen is our our beginning this week, and uh, let me read to you what what happened here. So John's disciples told him about all these things. That's referring back to the earlier part of the chapter that we were thinking about last week that Steve was talking to us about. Especially, I think, the raising from the dead of the widow's son. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? That's just a metaphor for an easygoing person. John certainly wasn't one of them. Uh, If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. So, as I've been saying, um, doubts are hesitations when we are unsure about something for whatever reason. Uh, It could be that someone upsets your understanding of something that you've held precious from God's word by giving a contrary Um, point of view. Or or maybe you catch a TV documentary which seems to discredit um, the accuracy or the the claims of of the Bible. Or maybe it's the behaviour of others in the church which causes you to question the integrity of the Christian life, especially when it might be perhaps Leaders or, or our spiritual teachers who, who fall into sin. Or maybe you experience suffering which causes you to question the love of the God who let it happen. Or something doesn't work out the way that you expected it to. And so on and, and, and so on. These can all be causes for doubts. And if we hit one of these bumps in the road, we need to find a way to carry on and not let them stop us, don't we? As the title of our subject today um, suggests, we need to deal with doubts, not deny that they exist and not let them sit in the back of our minds and, um, and fester. Things weren't working out in the way that John the Baptist Expected them to, were they? Let's just remind ourselves of what John did expect. In Luke 3, John says to the crowd, One more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He'll baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then we learn that the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John expected the Messiah to come with power and, and judgment and to take away all the sin of the world, to cleanse it and we know now the benefit of the full um, testimony of God's word, what that would entail, what that would mean, how Jesus would deal with the sin of the world, and when Jesus will come again in power and judgment. But for John, with his more limited understanding, he perhaps thought that his unjust incarceration, just for speaking truth unto power, telling Herod what he thought about his uh, wrongful marriage to his sister-in-law. But perhaps John thought that that imprisonment was going to come to an end pretty soon, that Jesus in power and when he did whatever he was going to do was somehow going to, um, that was going to result in John being, um, being released. But time was passing, wasn't it? And, and John was, was, was still locked up. And, and the stories that, um, that John was hearing about Jesus, as lovely as they were, um, they weren't quite what John really expected um, maybe he got it wrong maybe Jesus was just another prophet like, like him so what did John do with, um, with his doubts? did he bury them? did he, did he pretend that they weren't happening? Um, no, he took them to the Lord um, didn't he? And how did Jesus respond um, when John's messengers asked the big, the big question? Uh, did he criticise John for his doubts? Did he say, of all people, John, you should know better? No. Um, Jesus is always sympathetic to our weaknesses. And actually, he went on to praise John, didn't he, as we, as we read. But I think there were two key things that Jesus um, did to reassure john firstly as we read in verse uh, 21 it says at that very time jesus cured many who had diseases illnesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind Uh, i'm not sure if that's suggesting that jesus did even more miracles um, at that point than he that he normally did on a working day but, but certainly those messengers were able to witness an amazing demonstration of the power of the Lord Jesus. And let's remember that although every miracle where Jesus healed or helped someone, there was genuine compass- compassion which motivated the, 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 the specific intervention. He, he made it clear on another occasion that the miracles were primarily assigned to attest to his identity that's what they were there for and that's what these messengers of John were were seeing with their own eyes a supernatural power that couldn't couldn't be any from anything else apart from 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 God but secondly verse 22 he says to the messengers go back and report to John what you have seen and heard and then he doesn't stop there he says The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. He's very precise about what he wants them to report. He doesn't want to risk them going back and saying, we had such a great time. We saw so many miracles. It was absolutely awesome, John. You should have been there. He didn't want to leave any chance that that's what they were going to go back. He wanted them to say some very specific things. Why was that important? Because he was using language which resonates, which which we find back in prophecy. 700 or more years before, in the prophecies of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapters 26, 29, 35, 61, and probably loads of other ones that I couldn't find. We find the same language being used about the Messiah. So in using that language and making sure that the messengers reported that back to John, um, he he knew that John should realise that these things that he was doing were exactly the things that the Messiah ought to have been doing. John had got a bit fixated, possibly, on um, on the judgment part and had overlooked the fact that the things that he had already heard before he even sent the messengers, the things he was hearing about what Jesus was doing, they are the things that the Messiah was foretold to, um, that, that he was going to do. Now I said there were two key things given for John to reassure him. I've actually got three points. All right? uh, because interestingly, Jesus doesn't say anything about why he wasn't doing the things that John expected him to do, you know, the judgment with unquenchable fire bits And instead, it seems John just had to wait and to trust for the things that he still didn't understand and wouldn't be explained to him at that time. And the same is often true for us. So what can we learn from all of this for ourselves? Um, what can we learn that can help us if any doubts arise in our own experience. Well, I think, I think the first thing is to recognise that doubt is a natural part of growing faith. Um, there are fundamental aspects of, of faith that I touched on earlier which take us to the point of salvation, aren't there? But after then, our spiritual growth will involve a variety of learning experiences which will strengthen and deepen our faith over time and during that process there may well indeed be doubts you know even after the lord um, appeared to his disciples after the resurrection they continued to to doubt um not just the ones the verses the occasions i mentioned before but in acts chapter 1 verse 3 uh, it says that over 40 days Um, We don't know the frequency over that period, of course. We don't know if it was every day. But over a period of 40 days, he gave them many, many convincing proofs that he was uh, alive. So, although we don't know how often he met with them to teach them the things that they would then go, which would then become known as the apostles' teachings, um, we do know that there were many convincing proofs. I was looking at that and thinking, why you know, how many times did they need to be told? How many times did they need to see? You know, were they still doubting after that occasion when they met him on the shore and he, he, he made them breakfast and they ate with him? Were they still doubting after all of that? And it says it required many convincing proofs before they properly were convinced that he was alive. My point here is that Um, If we have doubts, we shouldn't view them as some sort of crisis, um, failure of faith. Um, But instead, they're an opportunity to ask questions and to seek uh, reassurance. And from the way Jesus responded um, to people's doubts, we can have confidence that he he will always sympathise with our weaknesses and our doubts. Uh, He will always welcome our questions. But the first step, I suggest, is to be open and honest with ourselves and with God. You know, sometimes I think we can um, disguise or um, call a reluctance to do something um, a doubt. We see something in God's word that says we should do it, and we don't want to do it. So so I'm not really sure about that. I'm a bit doubtful, however, that one's really, you know, really for me. You know, sometimes, or or, or there's something in church practice that we don't like. It's, uh, or or it's, you know, it's it's hurtful, it's difficult. You know, not everything in the Christian path is easy. In fact, the Lord says most of it's hard. There's something we don't like, so we call it a doubt because we don't want to do it. So we need to be honest with ourselves. Do I, am I, I really struggling to understand this or actually do I not want to understand this and believe it? There's a a need for honesty. And then we bring that to God in prayer. Admitting our genuine doubts and asking for help. That's the first step in dealing with doubt. Secondly, Jesus pointed um, John to the observable evidence of his work. And in our lives, if we think back, there have been times when God has intervened, hasn't there? Mm -hmm. Times when um, he has um, helped us or reassured us. Um, maybe through his word, or through other people, or probably a combination of the two. And in the world around us, God is working. We just need to open our eyes. That's poetic language for doing our research, isn't it? And paying attention to the things that God is doing in the world. We can see the evidence of him working. In the world and in people's lives and in our own lives as well. We are his workmanship. We should be um, the best evidence of the genuine work of God. And thirdly, Jesus um, took John back to the scriptures. Um, They are a testimony to the works of God over, over thousands of years. And because the Scriptures themselves were written over so many of them, around 1,500 years, I've said this many times before, but I think this is one of the tremendous evidences um, that we have in God's Word. You know, There are promises, there are prophecies in the earlier part of the Bible which were fulfilled <coughs> later on. And that just doesn't mean that they were fulfilled later, you know, in later chapters. Because the Bible was written over such a long time, they were fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of years later, and we know that those chapters which describe the fulfilment of those promises were, were were written later, so we can see the evidence of God's of, of prophecy coming true. That should give us all the more reassurance about the promises which have yet to be fulfilled, because they are for a future a future um, day. The scriptures also tell us um, so much about God about the character of God, about the love of God, about the faithfulness of God. And that should help us with the fourth point. Because fourthly, like John who remained in prison, was never released and was eventually executed, um, we might have to live with unanswered questions, Uh, disappointments and difficulties that, that we would love the Lord to take away. Remember Paul and his thorn in the flesh. Uh, and he doesn't. But the more that we can get to know the Lord, um, and the more, um, the more we can trust him for the things that uh, he can't explain or change for us at this time. So the subject uh, we were given was dealing with doubts. Uh, in a nutshell, be honest Be honest with ourselves first and then be honest with with the Lord. Take our doubts um, to God in in prayer. That's very important. Uh, Look around at the evidence of God working in the world around us. Read what the scriptures say and trust in the God who loves us, cares for us, has said that he will never leave us, has said that in this world we will have trouble but to take heart that he has overcome the world. Be honest, pray, look around, read and trust. And perhaps if we do these things, we'll be all the more able to deal with doubts. Let's pray.